All right, when um, we chose this series because in light of Christmas, um, I, I feel that in the midst of we have hustle and bustle, um, people forget how to drive, um, we can't go to Target anymore, and um, we are around family, whether it's warranted or not, or we willingly or unwillingly do that, uh, we might have um, consumerism issues at its peak. Uh, We want those flannel pajamas with the snowman on it or whatever it is that we want. And we see the iPod uh, mini, which I always thought was an iPhone, but apparently not. Um, And we want all of these things and consumerism begins to take over. And I think that's one piece of it. uh, That's just across the board. But I also think that for, for Christians, I think Christians also absolutely lose their mind uh, during Christmas. And, and here's what I, what I think happens. Uh, we, we get really defensive um, and we get really crazy when, when people don't say, uh, when we say Xmas and not Christmas, we get really offended, you know? By the way, the X means Christ. Just want to let you know that. Um, but also, uh, if people don't say Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays, we feel like we're losing some type of cosmic battle with the world. Like we're, we're not going to be achieving the kingdom of God and God is going to be really disappointed. And like, like, like honestly, we want non-believers to act like Christians during Christmas. It's odd. And then we act like non-believers during Christmas. And so we, we end up kind of falling into this pattern of defense and consumerism, and it ends up being lumped into that we really genuinely forget what it's all about, the very gift of faith that God gives us and remembering Jesus, remembering what Jesus has done in our place. And so I really think we want to come together here at the end of the year and huddle up and really challenge you to remember what this gift is and how profound this gift is. Look at Ephesians 2, real quick, before you turn to Hebrews 11. It says this, by grace you have been saved through, what's the word? Faith. And it's not of your own doing, it is a, what's the word? Gift of God, which is undeserving. We don't deserve it, but it says not of work. So it's not anything that we're doing that we deserve this. We haven't earned any merit. We haven't put up any brownie points. It says not a result of work so that no one can boast. So we can't be arrogant. We can't be looking down at people that say happy holidays or happy Hanukkah. We have to remember uh, this is a gift that God has given us so that we would believe and proclaim the name of Jesus. So it's a, it's a gift, right? We, we can agree here. This is a gift. And so in order for us, what Paul is saying, in order for us to have grace, there's something that has to come before that, and it's to have faith. So we have faith that leads us to repentance and that leads us to gravitating to the grace of God that he offers. And so it's important for you to know this. In scripture, faith is described a multitude of ways, all right? Uh, When Paul in Galatians, when Paul describes, when when, when Paul is accused for when he's persecuted and he's accused for proclaiming a different gospel, and he's saying, no, you guys are proclaiming a different gospel. It says this in Galatians. It says, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. 
So, so the way that they describe it here in Galatians is this. Faith is a creed. It's a statement of belief. That's the way it's described there, okay? Here's another way it's described. John and Acts, both, uh, both John in the Gospels and the, the book of Acts, the history of the early church, it's described as a personal faith in Jesus as the hallmark of all Christianity, so we have a statement, and then we have a personal faith that's a couple of different ways described. Another way it's described is this, the way that Jesus describes it. It's very interesting. Jesus describes it this way. Um, when Jesus has, uh, he's gathered around his disciples, and little children begin to come up to Jesus in Luke's gospel. And what, what takes place is he begins to get very frustrated, the disciples do, they get very frustrated at these children around, and then Jesus really blasts the disciples, and he says, we need to come to God like little children. We need to have, we've always heard this, faith like a child, right? And so what he's saying is this. Does that mean every child is a believer? No. But he's saying the posture of a child is one of submission to their father. And so when we come to God and we have faith like a child, we're going to come to him with a posture of full Submission. It's just like when I realized not long ago, I had a crazy thought when you're a parent um, and you have two children and you watch Walking Dead, you lose your mind. Um, And so what happened was I had our baby son, uh, this is a few months ago before he could sit up and stuff, in the bathtub and I was running the water. And I remember looking down at him as he's laying on his back. He is hopeless at this point. He cannot stand up. He can't get up. And so I was thinking, Jess was gone to the grocery store, and I was thinking to myself, if I pass out right now, this water is going to cover him, and he will drown. And I was thinking to myself, his life is in my hands completely. I mean, right now, it's in my hands completely, too. I mean, he can crawl, but he can't get, I mean, if I'm gone for a month, he cannot survive in that house. He's done. And so what Jesus, the way he describes faith like a child is, you come to me under uh, and believing in such a way that you know that my, your life is in my hands and my sovereign control. So you have these three different examples. You have one that's like a creed. You have one that is uh, the hallmark of the Christian faith. It's a personal faith. And you have one that is described as really you're coming as full submission. But he's not saying every child believes in God. No, he's given an example and an illustration of what faith is. And so we have another way that it's described in Hebrews chapter 11. And he uses the nuts and bolts of what faith is. It becomes a very abstract usage that what we can glean from today, we can look at these people and we can see their faith. And when we even see that we add to it in Paul's writing that it comes and that faith brings us to God and we know God and we love God, we can appreciate what takes place here in Hebrews 11. So let's look at it. Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says this. Now faith is the assurance of things, what's the word? Hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So he uses this word like assurance. He says it's the conviction, which literally means it's the confidence. Um, assurance, conviction, confidence. These are the words that he uses, but he says it is what we 
hope for. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to hope for something? Uh, if you think about the word hope, what, what, does, what comes to your mind first? Well, here's what it means. When I say that I hope that one day the UNC Tar Heel basketball team will have more national championships than the evil, wicked empire of the Kentucky Wildcats. What I am saying is this, that UNC currently has five titles and Kentucky has eight titles, which is what I'm saying is this. I want the current situation to change. I want the outcome to be much, much different. And I'm saying it's not that way now. So I'm hoping for something else. Are you tracking with that? You see the difference here of what hope does? It says that you want a, your current situation to be different. So if you are hoping to be married, what that means, what it should mean, is that you are not currently married. <laughs> if you are hoping to be married and you are married, we need to meet after this sermon, okay? But that's what it means. So if you're hoping to lose weight, if you're hoping to gain more money, if you're hoping to get a different job or a different car, that means there is a situation, a current situation that you want to be different, which is literally this. You are in some way discontent, you're some way discontent. And so you want this situation to change in its birth out of, so what the writer of Hebrews is literally saying, faith is birthed out of things that we hope for. Faith is birthed out of things that we are discontent with. That's, that's weird, isn't it? I, mean, I grew up thinking discontentment is always wrong. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, there's a godly discontentment that you can have. This is why throughout Scripture, over and over and over again, uh, what you see is the constant message. If you, if every other sermon, I think I bring this up, that this world is not your home. So you're never, thank you. I like that. Thank you, Jerome. Um, this world is not your home. And so you want an outcome different than what this world, you're not comfortable. This world will never truly satisfy you. There is a discontentment here that draws you to faith in God. You see it over and over again. The writer says this in Hebrews. He says, they are looking to things not seen. You see it in verse six. You see it in verse 27. They are looking to things not seen. Seen. They are putting their hope in something that is unseen. It's not in front of their face, but they know that their current situation needs to be different. And I don't know about you, but this week was a, probably one of the most sobering reminders that we could have of that. And we look on the news and we see that someone can walk into an elementary school in Connecticut and open fire on 18 innocent children, 27 people killed total. I can't think of anything more demonic than that, than to shoot a child who can, who's defenseless. And then what it does for me, my response is this, come quick, Jesus. Will you come soon, Jesus? Take us out of this world that we live in. What it is, the Lord is showing me little signs to remember 
This world is not where you belong. You belong somewhere else. You belong the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This world is not our home. It's something that I hope for. It's something that I long for. There's a discontentment in my heart that longs for something more. And that's where faith is birthed from. So look at verse 2. For by it, people of old receive their commendation. Now, he's making a general statement here about the people of old. And so he mentions some of them here in Hebrews 11. He doesn't mention everyone that uh, received this commendation. Uh, He also mentions some who are believers. And there's some that we don't know for sure. And so to, to grasp the meaning of Hebrews 11, what does he mean by people of old? Well, I think it's important for you to understand Hebrews 11, you have to understand all of Hebrews. I used to have an old uh, Testament professor, I believe he used to say, that the book of Hebrews is to tell the Hebrews to stop being Hebrews. That's a good way to remember it. The book of Hebrews is to tell the, people of he- to tell the Hebrews to stop being Hebrews. And what you see in this constant message, Hebrews is great because it's laid out by, like a sermon. That's why every pastor loves Hebrews. And that's why every pastor who preaches through Hebrews takes 18 years to do it because it's like a sermon. And so what it is, it's, it's a sermon that consistently reminds the Hebrews that Christ is better, that Christ is better than the angels, that Christ is better than Moses, that Christ is better than the prophets, that Christ is better than the priests, that Christ is better than the law. He's laying out everything that Christ is better than. And so what he does in chapter 10, he begins to unpack the essence of faith. And in chapter 11, he begins to unpack the fundamentals here and he explains several examples of what faith looks like, what this nuts and bolts, what this, um, this simple recipe of faith is, and it's important that you see it because he isn't necessarily talking about saving faith. Although there are some believers in here, but we cannot say sweeping statement, all the people in Hebrews 11 are believers. Here's why. The writer of Hebrews doesn't say that. The writer of Hebrews says, um, like in verse 29, he says, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they, when they attempted to do the same, they what? Drowned. And so here's what you have in Hebrews 3. Same writer, same book. Tell the Hebrews, stop being Hebrews. This is what he says in Hebrews 3 about these same people. Hebrews 3, 16, it says this. Was it not all who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. That sounds like a non-believer, correct? Unbelief. And so what you have, the same author is saying something about the Red Sea, and he's saying that these are non-believers, but they've crossed the Red Sea by faith. So what, what do you do with that? So obviously we can't say it's saving faith. We have to understand then what faith is. So verse 30, he talks about the walls of Jericho. Same generation, that generation's called out to be predominantly unbelievers. And so what do we do with this? When he talks about faith and the people of old receive their condemnation, look at the verse 3, the very next verse it says, By faith we understand 
The universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. He proclaims here strongly the essence of faith is taking God at his word. We believe that the world was created by his word. He even says this about the people of old in Hebrews eleven thirty nine. 39. It says, and all these things, though commended to their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something, what's the word? Better. You'll see that word over and over and over again in Hebrews. Better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So as believers, here's what we do. We read the story of this bare bones of the fundamental, the secret ingredients, the nuts and bolts of faith. And we can be challenged and encouraged as believers as we look into this story and see these people live their lives. And literally, here's how they lived it. They just responded to God's word. I mean, if you're crossing the Red Sea and God opens up the Red Sea and you got Pharaoh's army coming back and says, walk across, you'll be fine. You're probably going to listen, right? You don't want to get killed, right? And so you got God's word is being proclaimed and you have people responding and he's saying truth is truth. When you respond to God's word, you're going to see him do incredible things, So that's the basic elementary things. And then not only that, but what Paul says about faith, he combines it with grace. So Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So here's the thing. Believers, we have this response and this responsibility to trust God at his word, but then we realize the incredible grace that he offers. And so here in Hebrews 11, you see these people who they want their current situation to change and they take God for his word and he does incredible things. So let me just show you just a few of these individuals. Verse four, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, he died, he still speaks. Is that not a powerful verse? Through his faith, he dies, but he still continues to speak. Uh, Abel's faith was very significant in the Bible, mainly because we see uh, his parents, Adam and Eve, sin in the garden, and then they give birth to several children, uh, but two sons they have particular that are highlighted is Cain and Abel. Jesus talks about Abel's faith. You see the John, 1 John, Abel's faith is mentioned there as well. And so let me just show you the story because I think it's important that you see it. Genesis 4, 1 through 4, it says this. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help from the Lord. And again, she bore his son, Abel. And Abel was the keeper of the sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel, and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, 
he had no regard. So here's what you have. In Genesis 4, you find a story of two children that are being born, Cain and Abel. And then we see a perfect example right out of the gate of how Adam's sin has corrupted mankind. And I don't think you have to be a brilliant sociologist to see how Adam's sin has corrupted mankind. But we have it right out of Scripture, the very next chapter, we see the fall of man happen in chapter 3. We see right away Adam's sin corrupt us in chapter 4 and how we are born sinners. And we see two brothers, one hates the other because God loves one of, one of the children. He chooses one of the children. It says, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. That's bizarre, isn't it? I mean, you look at two brothers and you wonder, why is there conflict? It's because there's sin in the world. I mean, look at, I'm going to show you a picture of my son, um, my little boy Gideon. Um, that's our, he's our youngest. He is uh, 13 months old. And right there, he is holding a gift that he is obsessed with. And it's under our Christmas tree. And he wants that gift. And out of all the gifts that we even had the same colors and everything, out of all the gifts, he wants that gift. Here's the problem with that. That gift is his brother's. All right? That belongs to Finn, our oldest son. So you can take that down. But here's the thing about brothers. Here's the thing about sin entering the world. We told him, I mean, not that he fully understands it, but we said no to that gift. But he wants that gift. You know why? Because we said no to that gift. And it belongs to his brother. And so right out of the gate, as cute as he is, he's rebelling against God. As adorable as he is, he's rebelling against God. And so how in the world were people saved then? If they're born from Adam's sin, if we're born from Adam's sin, God has to reach down and save us in the same way he did for Abel. It says the Lord had a regard for Abel and his offering. It wasn't something that he did. It was that the Lord just saw fit to save him. All right? If you look throughout the Old Testament, you'll see this common phrase where I, I, I struggle with preaching that highlights characters in the Bible and makes heroes out of them. Because there's only one hero in the Bible, and it's Jesus. And so what happens is when we try to make David a hero for standing up, listen, David was an idiot before God reached down and redeemed him. Um, you look at, we'll talk about Noah in a minute, but you look at Noah, he was, I mean, in any way, there's no way in the world that God should use a person like that, but he does. Look at verse four. Let's look at even more, or verse five, rather. Verse five, it says this. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Again, Enoch is this guy who is walking around. We only have a short verse, Genesis 5, 24. I'll just show it. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's what we have on Enoch. And he's this old man who's walking around talking to this invisible person. 
I mean, it's like, it's like six cents. Like he's Bruce Willis talking to this invisible person. He was dead the whole time. I don't know if you saw it yet. Um, he's talking to this invisible person and everyone's looking at him like he's crazy. And all of a sudden, God just takes him up and he escapes the sting of death. I mean, what love could God give to a crazy old guy talking to him all the time? That he would take him out of this world. I mean, I was just thinking how incredible it would be if God would just do that to us. That we would avoid the sting of death. That we would be reminded this world is not our home, we'd be taken away. And, it, and it, when I look at Enoch's life, I, I'm put into a perspective to see life differently. Like, here's an example. Uh, when all the craziness happened this week uh, with the shooting in Connecticut, my oldest son is with his grandmother um, this weekend. And we couldn't get a hold of my grandmother, my mother. Um, we couldn't get a hold of my mother um, because cell phones and grandmothers, they don't work out often. Um, and so we're calling, we're trying to, and we cannot get through, we cannot get through. And it was a panic a little bit because you just see something like that happen. You just want to know your family's safe. There's just something there that does that. Um, when you have kids, some, some of you don't have kids, but when you do, you, you'll realize this. It is a panic there if you just want to know everybody's okay. And we could not. And I had to remind myself of Enoch. Because what it shows us is this world is not our home. And also it reminds me that Ben is not mine. God has loaned me a son. God has loaned me a wife. God has loaned me a younger son. We are loaned. I, God has loaned me my life and my breath that I breathe. And we're just on a loan. And man, how incredible it could be to be like Enoch and just be taken away. At any point, we could avoid the sting of death. And by faith, Enoch was taken away. You see the next one, verse six. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. But this, he, con- he condemned the world, became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Let me just read you that story, what happened here with Noah. Turn with me to Genesis 6, 7 through 8. It says this. <clears throat> the Lord said, I will blot out Man, whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Was that because Noah was a really good guy? Because that's the way I grew up hearing it. Noah's this really great guy, and that's the reason why he didn't swim. And if you want to, to not drown, if you want, you want God to be mad at you, you better be a good guy. No, it's because God saw favor. And scripture says this phrase over and over again in the Old Testament, it was counted him righteousness. It was counted him righteousness. And this is God's saving faith in the Old Testament, that he would account some righteousness. We don't understand it. I mean, you look at Noah's life after the ark, it's a mess. 
He's not a hero. It's the fact that God gave him faith. It was accounted to him as righteousness. He saw favors, favor in the eyes of God. Look at verse 13, Genesis 6. It says, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Verse 21. Skip down to verse 21. It says, Noah did this, and he did all that God commanded him to do. All that God commanded him to do, he took God at his word and did what God commanded him to do. Now, I don't know about you, but he builds a house. Let me just paint the picture for you. He builds an ark 500 miles from the nearest ocean, a thousand times bigger than his family would need. And he's supposed to gather two of each kind of every animal into this ark all across the land. And everyone thinks he's crazy. But he takes God for his word. And that's the reason why he didn't swim. It's because God gives him faith and he takes God at his word. And I don't know how in the world this ended up being on kids' pajamas forever um, when God decides to kill everybody. Um, But that's what happened. God kills everybody, and all of a sudden it ends up being toys in church nurseries all around the world. Noah and the ark. What a beautiful story. No, actually, that's when God killed everybody. It was pretty bad. Um, But he lets one family not swim, and that's a good thing. And they take him at his word, and they obey him. And that's the beautiful picture that we see. And so what you see throughout Hebrews 11, what we just saw are the nuts and bolts of what faith is. It's not saving faith because we see later what saving faith is. Those who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, those that he sees favor in their eyes. He saves them out of, we don't even understand why God would do it, but he just does it because he's good. And we, we see this picture, but it's a nuts and bolts picture of faith of people who have taken God at his word. You have Abel. He had a sacrifice that was pleasing to God even when his brother hated him. You have Enoch who's willing to walk with God so intently that he just goes home with him. You have Noah in the face of every critic and, the, and the, as the world shows utter hatred to God, he still takes God at his word. And what do you see in all of these three places? None of them cling to earthly things. Abel doesn't cling to his brother. Enoch doesn't cling to the earth. Noah doesn't cling to his critics. And so they trust God at their word. They choose to listen and look and long for something invisible rather than things that are visible. And so as I look at this, and I As you look at even those who believed in the Old Testament, they longed for a Messiah to come. They were promised in Genesis 3, 15 that something would happen, there would be redemption that would take place. And they longed, and I want to long in that same way as Abraham would have longed, 
as Noah would have longed, as Abel would have longed. I want that so badly for my life. And what I've learned, the older I get, the more I long for that to happen. I don't know if you've experienced that. For those of you who have gray hair in this room, have experienced that. That the older you get, the more you long for that to happen. And in this last year, I'm, I'm 33 years old, but in the last year and a half, I have experienced um, incredible suffering. And I, I've had a pretty good life. I've been very blessed. And the Lord has placed things in my life that are just challenging the last year and a half. And what I think I have learned is God is putting a discontentment in my heart that this world cannot be clung to, that I must cling to him, and that I must long for him, and I must take him at his word. And what I've seen um, in this last year and a half of really intense things that have happened in my family and with me personally, I've seen God do incredible things in my marriage, with my children, um, with my relationships, and with this church. I've seen God do incredible things. And it's just because I think God is doing is he's pressing me to not cling to things of this world. I'm not saying I'm good at it. I'm just saying he's pressing me. And I'm learning to take him as, at his word. And so there's a discontentment here that this world cannot be my home and I cannot hope for satisfaction and joy of this, that this world has to give me. And so my challenge for you this morning is this, that I cannot think of a better time of year to deprogram and to long for the coming of Christ. And what a reminder, as we get too comfortable, as we often get too consumeristic, as we get too um, thinking about ourselves, our selfish ambitions, our selfish pride, that God would humble us and that we would long to know him more and that we would just trust him at his word. So this morning, I'm going to do something different. I'm just going to read a passage of scripture that I think will encourage your heart, and then we'll pray. First Peter 1. I had not planned to do this this morning, but I want to share this with you. First Peter 1, verse 3. It says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his rich Mercy, he calls us to be born again to a living, what's the word? Hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, keep in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice through now for a little while. And what Peter talks about when he says a little while, he's saying the world, the rest of your life. For a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, is tested by fire, may be found in, to result in a prize, praise and glory and honor in the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
though you have not seen him, that's faith, right? You love him. Though you not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is an inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. God help us. Let's pray.